Well, my friends, I want to encourage you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Father in heaven now, even as we open up these Bibles before us, God, we ask that you open up our hearts, soften our hearts, God, that they would be good soil for the good seed of the word of God. That there would be much fruit because of what we have studied here today. Help us to engage in a way that honors you, I pray in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Amen. Today we will begin a study in the book of Romans. And the book of Romans is a very, very important book to study in that it addresses questions that we struggle with about God about his son Jesus, about man, about the origin of sin, and our great, great salvation. And it is essential that we study these things. It is essential that we study doctrine, for it impacts how we worship God. It equips us to serve God. It transforms us and how we view our life and our future. And it protects us from falling from the lies of the evil one. We must study the truth. Now in the first section of Romans, Paul uh, begins to lay out a case against all of humanity. The first three chapters, as it were, Paul takes humanity to court. And the result of all of it will be that we stand guilty before a holy God. That's just the first section, and it only gets better from there. But there is truth, my friends, that we must grasp a hold of. Now, chapter 1 begins with an introduction, as all of Paul's letters do. And this uh, introduction begins with Paul and the gospel. You will notice here with me in verses 1 through 16. Paul writes about Paul, and he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus... So he identifies himself as a servant. Now the word behind that is doulos. To be a servant of Christ would have been a meaningful label or title for the Romans because of course in the Roman Empire had uh, estimated 60 million slaves. And a slave was seen as a piece of property, not a person. In loving devotion, Paul had enslaved himself to Christ, to be his servant, and to obey his will. And so Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. An apostle, of course, is one sent, one sent, an apostle, one sent by God for a particular mission. And Paul's about to make that very clear, what it is before we hit the end of the sentence, set apart for the gospel of God. If you ask Paul, so what do you do in life? He would say, gospel, I gospelize, I talk about the gospel, I communicate the gospel to the lost, I teach the believers who have put their faith in Christ, having heard the gospel. Paul's self-description, here my friend, a servant, an apostle, set apart for the gospel. So Paul, having written about Paul, now writes about the gospel, as we would fully expect that he would do. Here in verse 2, you will notice, you will notice this gospel. 
which he promised before through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. And so this gospel that Paul is investing his life in was prophesied in the Old Testament. All of the clues were laid out. That's why Jesus was just so dumbfounded by the people who rejected him over and over again. If you had read the Scriptures, you would know who I am. But they didn't read the Scriptures in order to learn, but in order to control. And so the gospel prophesied in the Old Testament was proclaimed in the New Testament. Again, the gospel which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures, verse 3, concerning his son. And notice what he says <coughs> about Jesus. Concerning his son, that's Jesus, who was descended from David. Why talk about David? Of all of the people that uh, are in the line of Christ, why David? Because it means that he has the right to be king. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a covenant with David about his kingship, but also about a dynasty. Remember that story where David went to the Lord and said, I want to build a house for you. You know, you got the tabernacle over there, which I guess is nice, but I'm living in this palace. I want to build a great big temple. And the Lord said, that's very nice, David, but what I'm going to do is build a house for you. He talks about a dynasty that would lead all the way to the Messiah. That's Jesus. And so he is the descendant of David according to the flesh. And why talk about that? Uh, because he is man, because he is the God-man. He is both God, he is both man. He has added humanity to himself in the incarnation. And that is very important. In order to be a descendant of the king, he must have humanity as the flesh. And notice verse 4, he was declared to be the son of God. That's deity right there. We have humanity and deity right there. In the same two verses. And he was declared to be the son of God. You say, what's that all about? Does that mean there was a point where he wasn't the son of God? Where where Jesus was not God, but he became God? That's not what it says at all. Notice carefully here. He was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection. In other words... When Jesus rose from the dead, he was proclaimed, the evidence is clear. He is indeed the Son of God. He is indeed the Messiah. And so he is declared the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection. And so the demonstration of the deity of Jesus is his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, my friends, Paul's writing about Paul, and then he's writing about the gospel. And the gospel, of course, we know is ten words, right? The gospel is this. Christ died for our sins, and he rose from the dead. Oftentimes, people leave off the resurrection. But, my friend, where would we be without the resurrection, without the hope of new life? If he has saved us for this life only, oh, how miserable we are. Would Paul say later on in this book? So Paul talks about now his audience. 
To those in Rome, we get to verse 7 before tells, Paul tells us who he's writing to. To whom did he write this? He wrote it to the church of Rome, but also, my friends, he wrote it to us. You see, the scriptures were not necessarily written to us, but they were most certainly written for us, that we might hear them, that we might respond to them in faith and forever be changed. And so here we are, Paul's audience, the identity of this church, of course, is Rome, and then we see that Paul prays for his church, which again, if you study Paul's letters, you know, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, they all include some kind of blessing and prayer for this church, as does he do here. To all those, verse 7, in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints. <coughs> I'm sorry about this cough, wherever it's come from. But calling them saints, that's a word that gets thrown around and misunderstood. To be a saint means to be set apart. That's the very meaning of it. It is not some holy and grandeur position in the church. It simply means that you are called apart for God. And so you are called to be set apart by God. Loved, called to be saints, grace to you and peace. Here is that blessing from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul identifies the church and then makes some intercession for the church. First, Paul says, verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all of the world. <coughs> and so Paul is praising them because they are living out their faith. In other words, they don't have to carry a sign around, I follow Christ. People just watch their life, and they knew it by the decisions they made, by the way that they talked and the word content of their speech and the manner of their work and their integrity. All of these things blasted out to the world that they were followers of Christ, and Paul praised them for that. But here in verse 9, he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve in my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. And what are you praying about, Paul? He says, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul longs to come and minister at that church. Notice his interest here in verses 11 through 13. First of all, Paul wanted to encourage the church. For I long to see you, Paul says, that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And that is that we may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, both yours and mine. But he had a second purpose as well. First was to encourage, the second was to preach. <clears throat> he says in verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. What's he talking about here, harvesting? Was he a farmer? Well, he surely was for the Lord Jesus. You see, when you preach the gospel and people come to faith, that's spiritual fruit right there, my friend. 
That is fruit in the kingdom. And Paul wanted to preach the gospel in order that some might believe and be saved and their whole lives and eternity would be changed. So Paul wanted to preach the gospel. Yeah, and harvest among them, as well as the rest of the Gentiles, indicating the ministry here is to the Gentiles. But notice verse 14, not just the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. And so Paul has this eagerness to preach. He has told us, my friends, about himself and about the gospel and about his audience, eager to, and his eagerness to preach. So verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There is only but one way to be saved, my friend, to be forgiven of your sin and to be adopted into the family of God. And that is your response of faith to the gospel, that Christ died for your sin and rose from the dead. And so he is indebted and eager to preach because it is the power to save. Notice, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, it is the revelation of God's righteousness, verse 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That's an unusual statement from faith to faith. From the beginning to the end, it starts in faith and it fulfills that faith. It is the power to sanctify. That word sanctify is connected to the word saint. It needs to be ever changed, set apart, functionally. Well, my friends, here are the first uh, 16 verses. We have seen Paul in the gospel. But how have people responded to that? Paul, who was so eager and anxious and excited and passionate to go and preach the gospel, how have they responded to it? Notice verse 18 with me, if you will. But God has revealed his wrath, my friends. There is Paul preaching it out, but notice verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That is why we need the preaching of the gospel. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so here they are pushing it down. I don't want to hear it, don't tell me about it, and I don't want anybody hearing about it in this room. They are suppressing the gospel. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. How? How has God shown it to them? Notice verse 20. You see, God has revealed to us his invisible attributes. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. 
So they are without excuse. There would be nobody on this planet that said, well, they never sent me a missionary. I didn't know anything about God. You see, in God's creation, my friends, when God created, he clearly presented something about himself. And that is an obligation to respond to it. Now here, in, uh, if you want to turn with me, you're welcome to do that. And Psalm chapter 19 talks about the very same issue. Psalm 19. <clears throat> it's a psalm of David. And he writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Living around here, Lake Michigan, we get some of the most amazing sunsets. Don't we, the smattering of colors across the sky, and we just, we take a breath and we say, isn't God amazing? And we say that the creation is not God, but it tells us about our God. It tells us that our God is powerful as we sit in our house and our house shakes with the thunder and the movement of the waters that could destroy a city. God's creation is powerful because it comes from a powerful God, but it is also beautiful because God is a good God. We can learn a lot about God simply by opening our eyes. <clears throat> the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out from all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has sent a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. What a beautiful picture of the power of God's creation. This world that we live in speaks amazing things about God. But are you listening? That's the whole point. Paul says here, those people have seen this every day of their life, the power of God. It, it testified in his creation and they are without excuse. No excuses. Yeah, but I never got a, uh, a missionary. Nobody ever said to me. I didn't ever had a Christian neighbor who would lovingly and kindly come and introduce himself and develop a relationship with me and show kindness to me in order that he might share the gospel with me. I mean, that's what we're doing, right? I mean, what kind of a monster would we be if we didn't do that? Knowing the truth and keeping it to ourselves. <clears throat> And so, my friends, they are without excuse. Now, here at verses uh, 21 to 32, we see why man has chosen what he has chosen, why God has been rejected since the beginning. First and foremost, because of their arrogance. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God because they saw themselves as God. It's all about me, what I want today, what I feel like today, my preferences today, not God's will, oh no. And so their arrogance 
They did not honor God because of their ingratitude or give thanks to him, Paul writes. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, although they knew God, they didn't honor him or even give thanks to him. Surely you have stood on the beach to look at the wonder of the lake and how the sun hits it and the sparkles are everywhere. And you surely give praise to God and his wonderful creation. Or you've seen how he's moved in your life, how he's provided for you. Well, you don't just wait till November for that, do you? No. You give gratitude, you express it. And they became foolish. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. You know what wisdom is? To recognize that God is God and you are not. But they became fools. And in their foolishness, they became idolaters. Verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You know who they made their gods? Well, they made their own gods. That's what they did. Talk about the great foolishness. To create an idol and say, this is who we will follow. Well, all that means is I'm going to tell you what the God said. <laughs> Guess what? And God wants me to do exactly what I want to do. Yeah. Imagine you are the nation of Israel. And the Lord, by a great hand, raised up Moses to bring you out of slavery. You have crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. And he has promised you a wonderful land. Cities that you did not build. Fields that you did not plow. All of this free. Bing, 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 bing. You are the big winner. And they make a golden calf and say, yeah, that'll be our God instead. Idolatry, I think we would all agree, is foolishness to create our own God. Therefore, in light of this response to God, ignoring him in their arrogance, being ungrateful in their ingratitude, in their foolishness, in their idolatry, therefore, verse 24, God gave them up. What does that mean? What it means, my friends, is he, he allowed them to receive the fruit of their rebellion. In other words, if this is why, how you want to live, I'm going to go ahead and let you do that and see how it works out. And as we look around our world and our cities and in our schools, we see it hasn't worked out that well, has it? Shooting, slaughtering people. Amazing. And so he has given them up to their own rebellion, the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. In lust of their heart, verse 24, in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Amazing. 
And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. For this is the reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Don't talk about it too much these days, but I think late 70s, early 80s, the talk about AIDS. Where in the world did this come from? Tell you what, built-in penalty for rebelling against God. You don't get to say, I don't believe in gravity anymore, so I'm going to jump off a roof and fly. There are due penalties connected with that, my friends, just as there are with sin. And so they should have responded by faith, but they did not because of their arrogance and their ingratitude and their foolishness and their idolatry, their immorality, and all because of their depravity. You see, they were gorged with evil. Look at verse 28, how sad this picture is. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil and covetousness and malice. They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips and slanderers and haters of God, insolent, haughty, and boastful, inventors of evil. Imagine. The good old Ted Kabayevitz isn't enough to violate. Let's come up with some more. Inventors of evil. <clears throat> Look at what else is in this list. Disobedient to parents. I'll tell you, friends, teach them to resist evil while they are young. You got kids, you got grandkids, teach them to say no. The flashy things that say, I am the hope you've been looking for. Turn them to God. Turn them to God. This is a picture, my friend, that we read about in Genesis chapter 6, where the Lord was going to flood the earth. You want to know how God feels about sin? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. That's Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. And if all of this wasn't enough, my friends, though they knew God's righteous decree, verse 32, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They do not, not only live in life of sin, but they encourage others to do it as well. This is why we need the gospel. 
This is why we communicate the gospel so passionately. This is why we encourage others to do it, why we do it ourselves, why we have a box of, uh, of gospel tracts out there so you could pick one up and share it with someone. Because, friends, if they don't have the hope of the gospel, if they don't know the gospel, the truth, and they don't trust in that, their eternity, my friend, is in hell. The wages of sin is death. And that word death means separation. We understand that very well, those of us who have lost people that are precious to us. Great separation. But that separation takes place in two ways. There's the physical separation. The person is gone, the body remains. Separation. But then there is spiritual separation. And that spiritual separation is this, is that you are out of a relationship with God. That God sees your sin and condemns it. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. You see, Christ died in our place. See how that works? What do we deserve? We deserve death, eternal hell. But just that we might live with the punishment we deserve. He died for us that we might live. And how must we respond? We must respond in faith. Now, the word believe and faith are connected to the same root word in the Greek in the New, the New Testament. But I'll tell you this, my friends, pistuo is, is, is very important. To trust means absolute dependence. You trust God with all of you, all that you are, all that you have, your future, your days, your hopes, all of those. It is absolute dependence on God. But know this, the gospel is the only hope for delivering sinful man from the wrath of God. The gospel is our only hope, my friends. That is why we must communicate it. And so let me ask you a couple of questions here. We've talked about this dark, dark passage of sin. It's not a lot of hope or help, and it's not very funny. But let me ask you, are you living the same way? Are you grateful? Are you a grateful person? When you think of yourself, is that one of those attributes you think about yourself? Well, I'm very grateful. I mean, what does grateful look like? What does gratitude look like anyway? What's it look like? Well, you know, you're like, thank you, God, for food. <laughs> you know, the old rubbing eyebrows when it comes to mealtime? I mean, we don't want people to know we're actually grateful to God for what he's provided for us, right? Yeah. Gratitude. If you are grateful, my friends, you will most certainly express it. You will express it. I've, ex I've knocked a couple of knuckles here this morning about what God is doing in their life, and they are grateful. They express it. And you know what else they do? When you're grateful, you testify to it. You tell other people, let me tell you what God has done for me. Let me tell you how God has stepped into my life and provided this for me in a way that I never thought possible. You see, when you're grateful, you express it. And you tell other people, yeah. 
Let me ask you this question as well. How much sin in your life do you tolerate? How much sin is okay? I mean, you know, you got to ask yourself that question. What kind of sins are going on in your life that you're like, you know, it's okay. I mean, you know, it's not as bad as some people. And You know what the wages of any sin is? It's death. Eternal separation from God. I mean, just a little. That's like saying, how much poison in your food would be okay? I mean, just a little bit, just a drop. Is a little bit of poison okay? That is how you must see your sin. It is death. It is death. And then let me ask you this. When's the last time you shared the gospel with someone? When's the last time that you said, I need to talk to you about something that's really important. And I'm not very good at it, and I just, I, and I'm nervous, and I'm, that's what it was like the first time I shared the gospel. The first time I shared the gospel was with my neighbor, Steve, who is an, a leader at a church today. How incredible. You don't know. You don't know what God will do if you open up your mouth. And this is where I talk about Edward Kimball got to talk to that student of mine, D.L. Moody, Dwight Lyman Moody. I want to talk to him about Jesus. You know that guy? I mean, that, that guy was an evangelist and shared the God of faith that you never would have been able to. Edward Kimball never would have been able to. People have come to faith generation after generation after this guy because of his investment and what the Lord has done in it. You don't know who that person might become in the family of God, a pastor, someone who encourages other people. Oh, friends, pick up a track when you leave here. Pick out the one you like, and don't just hand it to someone. Explain it to them. You say, I'm not very good. Then get better at it. How about that? How about that? We figure it out, we practice it, we talk to people who are a little better at it than we might be. Say, so how do you do that? Well, you do it by the power of the Holy Spirit is what you do. All done. Hey, let's not just one ear out the other. Let's live this, okay? You are a great church to me. You hear, you listen intently, you connect with this, and I know you struggle to live it out. Let's continue the work, my friends. Let's be good livers of the word of God, but let's also be dangerous to this world who wants to live in sin. But we come bring light and salt to this world. Father, help us, God, I pray this morning. We know the truth. Boy, if there's a quiz, we're going to pass it. But we must live this out. We must be better than we are. Help us, Father. By your Holy Spirit, fill us. Empower us. Encourage us. Lead us, God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.